Welcome back. I'm Ben Shaw. You're listening to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Today's show is sponsored by Blue Heron Battery. Are you thinking about installing lithium batteries on your boat? And I know a lot of people are because there are so many advantages, including less weight, faster charge times, more usable power, and longer lifespans compared to other types of batteries. But understanding all the ins and outs of installing lithium can be a real challenge. And I know that from experience. I've spent a lot of time over the past few years looking into all the ups and downs, which is exactly what drew me to Blue Heron Battery and Hank George, because Blue Heron batteries are made with high-quality cells, and they come with a great warranty, provide Bluetooth access to numerous parameters, and are available at an exceptional price. Blue Heron was recommended to me by multiple cruisers, and that's why I recently purchased a couple of Blue Heron batteries. Hank really knows his stuff. He helped me determine what I needed for my boat, My new batteries recently arrived. I'm working on the installation, and I'm thrilled that they take up so much less room than my gel cells did for less weight and more power. You can find out more and order your batteries at blueheronbattery.com. So I'm still working on the installation. All the cabling and terminals should be arriving soon. And I'm going to talk um, in this episode a little bit more about that installation. A special shout out also this week to Glenn Pullen, who joined the Out the Gate crew recently. Thanks to Glenn for becoming a Patreon patron for Out the Gate. And while I haven't met or sailed with Glenn yet, we've been in touch. And I know he has a new boat that he's excited to take out on the bay more this summer. If you enjoy the show, consider heading over to patreon.com slash out the gate and support what I do. I appreciate all the support. Okay, this week I'm going to try something new. Um, I do not have a interview guest. I'm going to go more along the Matt Rutherford style of talking. We'll see how this goes. Honestly, I'm a little nervous about just seeing if I can rattle on here and keep it interesting for you. I really enjoy asking the questions and then listening to the answers. But I think I have some interesting things to share this week because... My wife and I just yesterday drove back from Los Angeles, just north of Los Angeles in in Oxnard, where we spent the weekend taking a safety at sea course sponsored by U.S. Sailing and uh, Sail Away is the organization that, that puts on the safety at sea course, safety at sea seminar, I should say. It was in Oxnard, California at the Pacific Corinthian Yacht Club hosted it. Um, they were kind enough to let us use their space and their pool. And it was a really, really interesting weekend. It was intense. There was a lot of information. Some of it really helpful. Some of it not as helpful or, or redundant. But I would say overall, I would recommend it for a number of reasons. And I want to kind of talk through what I thought was helpful and why you might want to take the safety at sea course. Uh, One of the reasons, there were a lot of racers there, 
mostly Southern California racers since it was outside of LA. But one of the reasons a lot of them were there was because uh, U.S. sailing is now requiring, I don't know the exact number, but some portion of the crew on each boat for particular races, offshore races, to have the safety at sea, to have taken the safety at sea course, which I think is a great idea. Um, because basically we spent the whole weekend thinking about what is the worst case scenario? What could go wrong? What would you do differently? Looking at cases where things have already gone wrong. And as somebody in the group pointed out, it's really easy to, to say what people should have done after the fact. And none of us know what we would do in this situation. But thinking about these situations and analyzing them and considering what are your options beforehand is always good practice before you actually find yourself in an emergency situation at sea. Quickly, I just want to go over what they, they covered, and some of this was more in-depth than others. But we talked about search and rescue. We talked about personal safety gear and its care and maintenance. I'll talk more about that, but actually that was really helpful because I find that when I first got an inflatable PFD, personal flotation device, I would handle it with kick gloves. I was always worried of hurting it, but really knowing that gear, digging into it and understanding it, I found super helpful just for the, the fact that I no longer feel like I have to tiptoe around it. I know how to rip into it and handle it appropriately. So we did that, and that was part of the personal safety gear. A brief overview of marine weather. I highly recommend people take a specific weather course. I don't think this was a substitute for that, but it gave a, a, a broad overview of marine weather, <laughs> as much as you can cover in about 20 minutes, half an hour. Crew overboard. Again, something that's really hard to do in a classroom setting. Uh, you have to get out there and see how your boat performs. But we did go over that. And we did do some hands-on with a life sling on a boat, connecting it to a halyard and picking people up. I'll talk about that. That was day two. Day two was a lot more of the hands-on actually doing things. Day one was classroom, um, which I think was a good balance. This I found really interesting. What's new in terms of communication? Because things are changing so quickly. What's new in communication gear? What's new in safety gear? Um, and that's everything from... What kinds of epoxy and caulk are working best underwater to what, what are the new satellite systems? So that, would, that was helpful. And then we got deeper into communications, which, I mean, there's such a, a soup of acronyms out there when it comes to communications and trying to figure out what's the latest with Starlink? What are the latest pricing pans of Starlink? Are they going to crack down on people who are using the RV system on their boats and all of these things? So we talked all about that AIS versus personal location beacons, EPIRB, and what are the best safety devices to have on you? With the caveat that, that gear and technology is truly never the answer to being safe at sea. So we, we kept that in mind the whole weekend as well. I, I want to put that out there. But going through all of the, the modern communications, abandoned ship and emergency signals, that was helpful. Some of the things that um, stood out to me in terms of day one, 
And this is probably I mean, what's not new to me, but just were wonderful reminders. So I would assume for a lot of you, you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. But the number one thing that I noted, that I have an asterisk here, is inspecting rudder bearings. Rudders are just so often a failure point. You hear story after story, whether it be a race or a cruiser, maybe a whale hitting a rudder has recently happened, sinking a boat in the Pacific, or a racing boat completely losing its rudder, uh, which was one of the scenarios we looked at. And the amount of water that can come in through where the rudder used to be is massive, can quickly sink a boat. So not only sinking a boat, but if you lose steering because something goes wrong with the rudder, thinking about having alternative ways to steer, whether that's a whether that's self-steering gear with an auxiliary rudder, whether that's an emergency rudder that, that they now sell emergency rudders or people often make them out of, uh, not very effectively, but out of floorboards and, and long poles or other things, or whether that's using a drogue as was done by James Frederick when he lost his rudder crossing the Pacific. I had him on the pad podcast to talk about that. If you missed that episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. He wasn't aware that was something he could do, and a shore crew who he was in communication with said, why don't you try that? You have a drogue, and he was able to steer himself halfway across the Pacific to Hawaii. Inspecting the rudder bearings on my own boat was something I wrote down and put a big asterisk next to. This next item gets back to inspecting the gear. So I have a life sling. Many of us do. If you look at sailboats out there in the, in the harbor, you'll see on the transom of many, many boats, the life sling pack. But when was the last time you unpacked it? When was the last time you pulled it out, all out, inspected it? Or better yet, tried it out, do it a chest run. So a lot of times it's a really hard thing to get that life sling to somebody in the water. Maybe your boat doesn't turn very hard and you have to make s the recommended way to use it is to circle the person in the water until the person can grab the life sling but what if you just are circling and circling and you can't make hard enough turn to get that life sling to the person so you want to practice that the very least you want to un unpack it and look at it regularly Along with that, looking at your PFDs, I, I touched on that before. Well, what we did in this course is really dig deep into the different kinds of inflatable PFDs that are out there. They have different mechanisms. They use different size cartridges. How you rearm them after they've gone off is different. And while there are three different types of mechanisms, that's not all. Even within the types of mechanisms, there are specific ones for specific types of life jackets. And one manufacturer will use different types of arming mechanisms depending on what you're looking for. Some are hydrostatic, which means they take pressure, water pressure to go off. Some go off when they get wet which can be a problem if you're on the bow or, or even if it's very wet in the cockpit and taking a lot of green water. You could have a, a life jacket inflate on you when you are not over the side. So different types of life jackets for different applications. What was stressed again and again and again in this course is 
With modern life jackets, there is no reason not to have your life jacket on all of the time. Like seatbelts, when they first were mandated, people said, oh, I have to put these on. Now you get in a car and you feel strange if you don't have a seatbelt on. So you just feel, you get used to the, the, the life jacket, you put it on, you wear it, and you feel naked if you don't have it on. Anyway, back to the different types. I learned that there is a new type of life jacket, new type of PFD that is hybrid. It has some integrated buoyancy. And if it gets wet, and I think it has a hammer release in it, which means it's hydrostatic. If it goes underwater, it will go off and add buoyancy. So while it has some buoyancy integrated, it will become more buoyant if you go in the water. Glow sticks on life jackets. That's another thing that I wasn't familiar with. Yes, lights on life jackets, flashlights, good to have. But glow sticks, easy to set off, can be seen, and you could keep some in the cockpit. And while we don't want to be throwing lots of plastic into the water, while if it's, there's an emergency situation, you have a man overboard, keep a bag of glow sticks, and you can start putting them in like breadcrumbs. You crack one throw it in. Next minute, you crack one, throw it in, and you've got a trail, hopefully, back to where the person went overboard. And while we're on PFDs and inflatable PFDs, one of the things that I've always found very confusing, because both because the technology is changing and because I've never really dug into it too much, was the personal location beacons that people will put on the inside of their inflatable life jackets. Again, not something you want to rely on. <laughs> Number one, you want to stay on the boat. You don't want to go in the water. But they can be helpful. There are two different types of signals. There's the personal location beacon, which sends an AIS signal back to the boat. Now that's VHF based. So one thing to think about is VHF is line of sight. And if you are in big seas and you are floating in the water and you are down in the trough, you are not very visible. You not, do not have line of sight to the boat and the signal is not going to be very strong. So you could lose easily. You know, what happens, you go in the water, the boat has AIS, hopefully, and all of a sudden you see a man overboard on the AIS. Now, older AIS will not show man overboard. It will just show another vessel, not as helpful. It's also not going to alarm unless you have it connected to a DCS VHF radio. The VHF radio with AIS integrated into it will alarm for a man overboard. But if you just have AIS showing on your chart, overlaid on your chart, that is not an alarm. It will just show the man overboard good way to locate the person, but it's not going to tell you that somebody went over the side. The other type of technology that you can wear on your life jacket, in your life jacket, is a personal EPIRB. I think we're, or at least I was more familiar with EPIRB and how that works, a satellite system back to an emergency center on land, and then they are notified that there is an emergency happening, whether that is a, an EPIRB on a boat or a personal EPIRB. You can wear that in your life jacket as well. And now, as just as of this year, there are personal beacons that are personal location beacons. So 
AIS, and EPIRB. That's the best of both worlds. The boat can locate you, and an emergency message is sent to the satellites. Newer EPIRBs, and this is something I learned, also have a notification that your message has been received, which is uh, nice reassurance. They also transmit on something called guard frequency, which is 121.5 megahertz. And what that does is notifies all the airplanes that may be flying overhead. They will get a notification that uh, an EPIRB has been set off. So not that you can communicate directly with them, but a message is sent. So I found that fascinating. The technology continues to improve, continues to change. Of course, with all of these things, you have to make sure that the batteries are up to date, that the registration is complete. Uh, for EPIRBs, um, you need to register with NOAA. With, um, uh, with DCS, you need an MMSI number for your vessel with the FCC. Um, and I also learned, so in terms of MMSI numbers, they are soon going to allow those to be assigned not just to vessels. The FCC is going to soon allow those not to be assigned only to vessels, but to handheld VHFs, which is wonderful. I th guess it was the diving community that was pushing for this because there are waterproof VHF radios. I, I, I assume people can dive with them, and then when they get back to the surface, call the boat. Um, but what's wonderful about that is that there then is a locator on it and the dive boat can know where the diver is but this is going to be handy for sailors as well so that you can register your vhf and it has a particular identity and then you can take that with you and you're going to go charter a boat somewhere there and you have this vhf radio that uh, is identified that was a lot of what we did in day one day two we started by putting on all of our foul weather gear, putting on our life jackets. And it was very funny. Um, we did this in a pool. I wish we had done it out in actual open water, but a pool is what we had. So we're sitting there on the pool deck. We're standing there on the pool deck, and it was very clear who were the Northern California sailors and who were the Southern California sailors. Lauren and I were standing there, long underwear, foulies, boots and next to us were people in shorts and t-shirt and flip-flops with their pfds on we inflated a life raft and then all hopped in the pool inflated ourselves that that was good just to feel what that felt like number one to see how hard difficult it was to swim with all of your foul weather gear on and an inflated pfd around your neck but what was even more interesting is we learned how to, if we had a group of people huddle up together, you could even, with um, four or five people, hoist one person out of the water a little bit. So if there's one person who's severely hypothermic, or you could take turns hoisting each other out of the cold water. But also, clumping together helps preserve your heat. Uh, we also learned how to move as a unit or make ourselves look bigger in the water. All really interesting things I hadn't even considered 
about being in the water if your boat goes down. And then we practiced actually getting into the life raft, uh, which is not easy. It's got pretty high freeboard. If you think about a life raft, most of them have at least two inner tubes stacked on each other so that the water's not sloshing in. You've got to get up over those. And the amount of water that you bring in with you into a life raft when you are fully clothed is pretty significant. I would say a couple gallons. So, and then learning how to help others into the life raft. So that was, that was a really good experience to have done that. We flipped over the life raft, flipped it back up so we knew how to do that. And then we did some man overboard exercises aboard after we got showered and, and, and dried off took off our wet gear, did some man overboard exercises aboard a boat with a life sling, lifting people, thinking about how difficult it truly is to lift somebody up out of the water, particularly if they're unresponsive. How do you get a life sling around them? Do you have to put somebody else, possibly on a halyard, lower them in to help them in it? Are there other ways to get somebody up on board? Um, Using a piece of cloth lowered over the side and roll them in it. Perhaps they're unconscious say a sail, triangular piece of cloth would work pretty well. You pull that up and get them on board. Lots of things that I honestly hadn't thought about before. The second day, we also had a fantastic, really stellar presentation by uh, Dr. John Sledge, who talked about uh, medical triage, hypothermia, assessing conditions, basically talked about taking charge and being responsible in terms of the medical condition of the crew. Super, super helpful. Again, a short presentation, and I would highly recommend a medical wilderness or a maritime first advanced first aid course to everyone to go more into depth to know how to handle trauma. Uh, but this was a, a very good overview. We finished up by looking at a couple of different scenarios, heavy weather scenarios in which there had been incidents and analyzing them and figuring out, not to play a blame game, but to figure out what the dominoes were. Because as we all know, it starts with one small thing going wrong that then snowballs and the second thing goes wrong, third, and then you have a true crisis on your hands. So identifying those dominoes so that you can see them and try and stop the cascade before it truly gets out of control. I would highly recommend this two-day, one-day classroom, second-day hands-on. You can do the first day online as well and then just show up for the hands-on. I personally think I learn more if I'm actually listening to somebody in person than staring at a screen for a number of hours. So Lauren and I decided to do it in person. And they and they offer these safety at sea courses. The U.S. Sailing does all over the country, up here in Northern California as well. It was just the timing worked out best for us to drive on down to L.A. for the weekend, do it there, and come on back. Check it out. Search Safety at Sea, U.S. Sailing online, and I'm sure a lot will pop up. The other thing that I thought I would talk a little bit more about today 
is the process that I've been going through to upgrade the 12-volt system on my boat. I am finally at a place where I feel quite confident about the work I've done. I tell you, it has been a true learning experience. As I mentioned at the top of this when uh, talking about Blue Heron batteries, I've been learning about, reading about, watching videos about not just lithium batteries, but 12-volt systems and how to configure them and how to do it safely. And I am by no means an electrical engineer, but I feel that I have gained a ton of knowledge in this process. I know my boat so much better. And when I have the new system installed, I will feel very comfortable that I know it because I have installed it. Now, that said, I do plan to get a ABYC electrician to review everything I've done once I've put the pieces together and before I've turned the switch because I want that peace of mind. I want somebody to be able to look over it and double check. And I have been asking so many questions of multiple people who have been extremely helpful uh, in terms of this. Uh, not only asking questions, but using the resources out there, taking it from other uh, marine wiring diagrams, or, you know, what's been super helpful is videos on van life, uh, people redoing their, their vans, their sprinter vans or their RVs um, with lithium batteries. There is so much overlap there. So I'm going to give a quick overview here of the system that I decided to go with, that I came up with and created for Dovka for my 35-foot boat. It doesn't mean it's right for you, but this is the setup that I've decided to go with for what I think our uses are going to be when we're cruising. Because we are not, I do not plan to have a whole lot of heavy loads. Um, I have my autopilot when we're underway. Well, the windlass, which is used for a very short time, which is the heaviest draw, have refrigeration are probably the main draws. Every once in a while, we'll use our inverter for power tools for... Uh, perhaps uh, a blender, immersion blender, or Instapod, or some other kitchen utilities, but that's not going to be an every, you know, we're not going to have air conditioning. Uh, we're not going to be using hair dryers on a regular basis. I don't have an electric water heater or anything like that. So uh, our draws are pretty low. So what we do have are 420 amp hours of lithium batteries. Lithium iron phosphate is the chemistry of those lithium batteries. Lithium batteries get a bad name because of people know about laptop fires or iPhone fires and they think about them as not safe, but lithium is not, lithium is, you can't just say lithium is lithium is lithium. There are multiple different types of chemistries of lithium batteries and lithium iron phosphate has been proven to be quite safe. That doesn't mean there can't be thermal runaway and fire with lithium iron phosphate, but they're very stable. If you have a good BMS, good management of the batteries, they are quite safe. And you have to keep in mind that other batteries, 
types too have their own dangers. So when you're working with electricity, you always have to keep in mind what the, the, the recommendations and what's safe. And I've tried, that's one of the things that's been hardest is learning about where do I need to have the fuses? What size fuses do I need for, for each wire? How do I do this all in the safest manner possible? Gauge wire, what's the current going to be? So that getting down into the nitty gritty is really, is really key in terms of the safety and the system working well and has been one of the hardest parts, but one of the parts that I've enjoyed the most, truly understanding all of that. The lithium is, are, are the house batteries. Those will be charged by the alternator. And I, a lot of people have set up their lithium systems to go through the start battery as a buffer to lithium bank house. So the alternator goes through the start battery, then they have DC-DC DC charger to the lithium. Now, I decided not to do that because I wanted to get the, one of the advantages of lithium is you can, they can take a large charge quickly. And I did not want to lose that advantage. You need a special regulator. Uh, I'm using a wake speed regulator. Balmore also makes regulators that can really regulate the charge specifically for lithium batteries. So from the alternator through the wake speed regulator to the lithium house batteries. And then I charge the start battery. I go DC to DC to the start battery, not through the start battery to the house. Uh, and that was a specific decision on my end. I plan to have around 800 watts of solar. That should allow us to go for, I would say, a, at least a couple days without running the engine depending on what our energy usage and what kind of sun we're getting, obviously. But that's the hope. Um, they are big, big panels. Um, and I do honestly have some trepidation about putting huge panels on the back of the boat in terms of windage. But a lot of people have said to me, get as much solar as you can. I have, do have a radar arch, and they'll go on there. If it starts becoming a problem, I'll have to look at ways to reinforce it or uh, mount them some other way. But that, that's the plan for now. I will also have an, an inverter charger, a 2,000-watt inverter charger that will allow us to run those AC loads that I mentioned before, power tools, uh, Instapot, things like that, when we want to. And on the rare occasions, we're hooked to shore power, and we'll also charge the batteries. And that is the main setup of the system. I found that the, the Victron Lynx distributor or Lynx Power In is actually what I'm using. I'm getting a little specific here, but was an excellent find in terms of a way to organize the positive and negative bus bars. So what I found is it was one thing to come up with a schematic, that, a plan of what I wanted to do figuring out how that actually fit into the boat was a whole nother process. Where are the wires actually going to run? Where are these components actually going to fit? How does that relate to where the old batteries were? I'm getting a little more space because I was able to rip out the old battery box and put a new a new configuration for the lithium. Where the rubber meets the road is how all of these pieces fit together. 
And as I mentioned before, not only where the cable runs, but what's the gauge, the fuse size that's needed, where do I put the switches, how do I think about, uh, I mean, this is talked about so much, um, and I honestly don't know how much or how little a problem it is, but the um, when lithium BMS, the BMS, which is the external computer that controls the battery, keeps the lithium cells balanced, can turn off the lithium batteries, can just shut them down, say, I don't like this charge input, or I don't like how much current I'm being asked to put out, or perhaps the batteries are, are unbalanced, and it just says, uh-uh, no, not happy, going to shut down for safety reasons, which is, which is good, but not good if you're navigating somewhere tricky and all of a sudden you lose all your power. So thinking about what you do as a pack backup system there, that's called load drop. That's a concern. I don't know how much of a concern it should be, but you want to be able to mitigate for it. All of these are, are things to think about. It's fascinating. It's definitely been overwhelming at times, but again, I want to say thank you to everybody in the Out the Gate community. I reached out to a lot of you. Some of you know a lot more about this than I do, and I relied on a lot of you a great deal asking you questions. And people beyond this community. I know people who aren't connected, don't listen to the show and are connected in any way, but I was able to uh, reach out to and, and ask questions to. So it's one of the things about the sailing community that I love that people are willing to share their knowledge. They have a pride in, in what they're doing and what they, their work and what they know. So I want to pass that along as well. I've learned so much over the past couple of years on this that I want to share that. If you're thinking of something similar and you want to hit me up and say, hey, what do you think about this? I can help you think about it and I'll tell you if I don't know. Uh, I am not the expert on all of this, but I certainly know more than I used to. I hope those two things were useful and I hope it wasn't too much of me just droning on here. I just thought I'd try this. I had thought I had some good info to share on both of these topics and wanted to get it out there. As I continue with the refit and as we start cruising, hopefully not sometime in the not too distant future, I might do more of these. I'd love to hear from you. Tell me what you think. Say, hey, never do that again. We just want to hear other people talking or yeah, that, that was great or we want to hear more about this and less about that or that was too much in the weeds or not enough. Hit me up. Let me know what you think. That's the only way that I can really tailor the show to you guys because it's about that community. A reminder again that you can become a more formal member of that community and help keep Out the Gate afloat by becoming a Patreon patron. Thanks for listening. You can reach out to me via email at outthegatesailing at gmail.com or on Instagram at outthegatesailing. That's it for this week. Until next time, smooth sailing. Smooth sailing.